Section 11 of Roman History, the Early Empire by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5. Nero, A.D. 54-68, Part 1. We read that when Domitius was told he had a son, he said that any child of his by Agrippina must prove an odious and baneful creature. The mother asked her brother Gaius the emperor to give the child a name, but he pointed to Claudius, his laughing-stock, and said that the little one should bear his name, though the mother angrily protested at the omen. Soon afterwards he lost his parents' care by death and banishment, and was brought up at the house of his aunt Lepida, entrusted to the charge of a dancing-master and a barber, till brighter times came back, with the return of his mother from her place of exile. He rose with Agrippina's rise to power and became the central object of her ambitious hopes, for the sister of one emperor and wife of another, she was determined to be the mother of a third. At the age of ten she had him made the adopted son of Claudius when he took the name of Nero. The choice of Seneca to be his tutor met with the approval of men of worth and culture, the appointment of Burrus to be the sole prefect of the Praetorian Guard secured the support of the armed force of Rome. His betrothal to Octavia strengthened his claims still further and stirred the jealousy of the young Britannicus and the grave fears of the old servants like Narcissus. The issue showed how well-founded were those fears. As soon as the death of Claudius was made known, Nero, hurrying to the camp of his advisers, spoke the soldiers fairly, and making ample promises of largesse, was saluted emperor by acclamation. The claims of Britannicus were set aside, and no voice was raised even in the Senate in his favor. At first the strong will of Agrippina seemed to give the tone to the new government. Votes were passed in her honor by the Senate. The watchword given to the soldiers was, the best of mothers. To satisfy her resentment or to calm her fears, Narcissus had to die. That she might take her part in all concerns of the state, the Senate was called to the palace to debate, where behind a curtain she could hear and not be seen. But the two chief advisers of the prince, though they owed their places to her favor, had no mind to be the tools of a bold bad woman, behind whom they could still see the form of the haughty minion palace. The prefect of the Praetorians, Afranius Burrus, who wielded the armed force of the new government, was a man of grave and almost austere character, whose name had long stood high at Rome for soldierly discipline and honor. His merits had given him a claim to his high rank, and he would not stoop to courtier-like compliance. He used his weighty influence for good, though he had at times to stand by and witness evil which he was powerless to check. Lucius Annius Seneca represented the moral force of the Privy Council, though he had the more yielding and compliant temper of the two. Sprung from a rich family of Cordoba in Spain, his wealth and good connections and brilliant powers of rhetoric had made him popular in early life with the highest circles of the capital, till he gained to his cost the favor of the emperor's sister. Banished by the influence of Messalina, he had turned to philosophy for comfort and won high repute among the serious world of Rome by the earnestness and fervor of his letters. 
few stood higher among the moral writers of the day, no one seemed fitter by experience and natural tastes to be the director of the conscience of the young nobility. With rare harmony, though different methods, the two advisers used their influence to sway the young emperor's mind and to check the overweening pride of Agrippina. They took the reins of power from her hand and reassured the public mind which had been unnerved by the despotic venal government of late years, with its tyrant menials and closet trials. They restored to the Senate some portion of its old authority and chose the public servants wisely. For five years the world was ruled with dignity and order, for the young emperor reigned in name but did not govern, and the acts that passed for his were grave and prudent, while the very words even were put into his mouth for state occasions. When the Senate sent a vote of thanks, he bade them keep their gratitude till he deserved it, and when he had to sign a death warrant, he said that he wished he was not scholar enough to write his name. The pretty phrases were repeated. Men did not stay to ask if they were Senecas or Neros, but hoped that they might prove the keynote of the new reign. But the two ministers, meantime, had cause for grave misgivings, for they had long studied their young charge with watchful eyes and had seen with regret how little they could do to mould his character as they could wish. Burris had failed to teach him in the camp any of the virtues of a soldier. All the lessons of temperance, hardihood, and patience left no traces in his mind. Seneca had been warned, we read by Agrippina, that the quibbles of philosophy would be too mean for his young pupil. He had little taste himself for the orators of the Republic, and did not care to point to them for lessons of manly dignity and freedom. But he did his best to teach him wisdom, spoke to him earnestly of duty, wrote for him moral treatises full of thought and epigram on themes like clemency and anger, but could not drop the language of the court, and hinted in his very warnings that the prince was raised above the law, was almost a god to make and to destroy. Nero, even from his youth, had turned of choice to other teachers. He had little taste for the old Roman drill in arms and law and oratory, and was, it was noted, the first of the emperors who had his speeches written for him from lack of readiness in public business. But he had a real passion for the arts of Greece, for music, poetry, and acting. Had the first masters of the age to train him, studied with them far into the night and soon began to pride himself upon the inspiration of the muses. To gain time for such pursuits, he was well content to leave the business of the state to graver heads, and to take his part only in the pageant. He had other pleasures of a meaner stamp. Soon it was the talk of Rome that the young emperor stole out in disguise at night, went to low haunts, or roved about the streets with noisy roisterers like himself, broke into taverns and assaulted quiet citizens, and showed even in his mirth the signs of latent wantonness and cruelty. His boon companions were not slow to foster the pride and insolence of rank, to bid him use the power he had, and free himself without delay from petticoat rule and the leading strings of greybeards. Their counsels fell on willing ears. He had long been weary of his mother, she had ruled him as a boy by fear rather than by love, and now she could not stoop willingly to a lower place. She wanted to be regent still, and hoped perhaps to see her son content to sing and act and court the muses while she governed in his name. 
but he had listened gladly to ministers who schooled him to curb her ambition and assert himself. He looked on calmly while they checked her control over the Senate, put aside her chief adviser, Pallas, annulled the despotic acts of the last reign, and took the affairs of state out of her hands. She was not the woman to submit without a struggle. There were stormy scenes sometimes between them, and then again she tried with woman's blandishments to recover the ground that she had lost. She talked of the wrongs of the young Britannicus and spoke of stirring the legions in his favor. As Nero's love for Octavia cooled, she took to her home the injured wife and made public parade of sympathy and pity. When it was too late, she changed her course of action condoned and offered even to disguise the amorous license on which she had frowned before so sternly, and tried in vain to win his love with a studied tenderness that would refuse him nothing. Nero's chief ministers had put him on his guard against her, and roused his jealousy and fear. They had now to stand by and see the struggle take its course, and watch the outcome with a growing horror. Britannicus, of whose name such imprudent use was made, was stricken at dinner with a sudden fit, and taken out to die, as all men thought, by poison. His poor sister hid her grief in silence, but she was soon to be divorced. Agrippina was first stripped of all her guard of honor and forced to leave her house upon the Palatine. False informers were let loose upon her, and wanton insolence encouraged. It was murmured that the dread Locusta was at work brewing her poisonous drugs, and that three times they tried in vain to poison her. One day it was found that the canopy above her bed was so arranged that the ropes must soon give way and the whole crush her as she lay in sleep. At length Nero could wait no longer, and he found a willing tool in Anicetus, the admiral of his fleet, and between them a dark plot was hatched. It was holiday time, and Nero was taking the baths at Baiae. Suddenly he wrote a letter to his mother full of sorrow at the past estrangement, and of hopes that they might live on better terms if she would only come and see him as of old. She came at once, and found a hearty welcome, was pressed to stay on one plea or another till at last night was come. Nero conducted her to a barge of state, and left her with tender words and fond embraces. She was not far upon her homeward way across the bay when, at a signal given, the deck fell crashing in, and the barge rolled over on its side, and the crew, far from coming to the rescue, struck with their oars at Agrippina and her women as they struggled in the water. But she was quiet and kept afloat a while, till a boat picked her up and carried her to her home to brood over the infamous design. At last she sent a messenger to tell her son that she was safe, though wounded. Nero, baffled in his murderous hopes and haunted by fears of vengeance, was for a while irresolute. He even called into council Seneca and Burrus, and told them of his plot and of its failure. They would have no hand in her death, though they had no hope, perhaps no wish to save her. While they talk, Anicetus acts. He hastens with an officer or two to Agrippina's house, makes his way through the startled crowd about the shore, and finds her in her bedroom all alone. There, while she eyes them fiercely, and bids them strike the womb that bore the monster, they shower their blows upon her, and leave her lifeless body gashed with wounds. End of section 11